If you're studying for an InfoSec certification, you'll probably get a lot of benefit from the Wanna Practice app. Thousands of practice questions unavailable anywhere else, each aligned with the official exam outline in a fully interactive format. Study by domain or take a simulated full practice exam. All functionality and content is available from any device with a browser or use our new Android app in the Play Store. So if you want to prepare for the CISSP, SSCP, CCSP, CISM, or CISA exam, go to wannapractice.com. Wanna practice. Success and certification is in your hands. Welcome to another episode of The Sensuous Sounds of InfoSec, where we discuss all things information, all things security, and all things information security. I'm Ben Maliso. And I'm Robin Cabe. And this week we have a very special guest. 40 years ago, I first became aware of his work in junior high social studies class in a film strip with a projector for his original Connection series. 10 years later, I got to actually see him speak live when he came and presented a speech to the college I was attending. And I actually got to meet him afterwards and shake his hand and get him to sign a copy of one of his books uh, that I still have to this day. Uh, last year, I felt nostalgic and I wanted to rewatch the original series. And when I went online to find out where I could stream it, I was extremely pleased to see that he had rebooted the series and continued it that very year. I can't tell you how proud I am and how absolutely awestruck I am to introduce our guest this week, Mr. James Burke. Welcome, Mr. Burke. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I, I have to ask you, first of all, and, and I know this was 30 years ago, um, I don't remember the entirety of the content of the monograph you presented at the college where I was attending, huh. but um, I do remember the title, and I wonder if you remember the anecdote that the title comes from. The, the title was, Do Lemons Whistle? <laughs> I, no, I don't remember. Uh, the, the way I remember the anecdote is um, a rather inebriated gentleman walks up to the hostess of a dinner party and asks, do lemons whistle? And she ah, said, in that case, I have just squeezed your canary into my gin and tonic. Correct. Yes, that's the one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I haven't repeated that for 30 years. Yes, <laughs> Um, You got a standing ovation for that uh, presentation, uh, by the way. It was, a, it was an excellent talk. Can you, can you either verify or dispel a rumor about that appearance? Um, we had reckoned that you owed some great favor to one of your Oxford classmates, uh, Lieutenant General Bradley C. Hosmer. Is, is that true? <laughs> well, I owed a lot of things to Brad Hosmer, yes, probably. <laughs> excellent, excellent. He was superintendent at the academy while I was there, and, and uh, we were very, very proud to see you speak, and, and it was yeah, wonderful. Yeah, Brad's a very old friend. Outstanding. Very good to hear. Um, all right. Now, I have to ask you, Mr. Berg, do you take full responsibility or indeed actual blame for almost single handedly influencing, if not creating two entire generations of nerds? Uh, 
Yes, I suppose so. Although I'm, I, I, I'm not sure I'm, 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 I'm worthy of the honor. <laughs> We disagree wholeheartedly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think there could be another icon of seeking knowledge or intuition than than you. Um, uh, cool. It's amazing. Now, now with that said, we do have uh, some critiques of your recent series, the New Connection series. Uh, mm -hmm. I have I have three issues with them, and I'll bring them up and I'll let you address them in turn. Okay. The first is the first is it's only six episodes long. We need more, sir. <laughs> we didn't have any money. <laughs> uh, are there plans for a second season if this one is successful? Who knows? You know, it's that kind of life. There's okay. a rumor that the BBC are thinking of funding a bit more, but I don't know. Okay, outstanding. Well, we're craving more, so if you can, please do. <laughs> Thank I you. I was very excited to read about the knowledge web and what you're doing with that and the possibilities it has to really democratize discovering science and knowledge for a wide range of audiences. Well, the, the knowledge web is really a sort of a spare time. What am I doing this afternoon? Nothing. I'll do a bit of this. Um, I, 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 I started working on it oh, ages ago, 10, 15 years ago um, when I started thinking, what do I do with all this spare stuff in the garbage can here that I've thrown away and not put in the series? And, uh, you know, the more I tipped the garbage can out, the more things fell together. And it occurred to me that it would be, it might be an easier way to approach the material for people who are not necessarily interested in hard, the hard graph that is just learning things and would prefer sort of game and so it's a kind of crossword puzzle on in language, so that the name of it is that you pick a pick a name, whatever name you want to pick, and you find it on the web, and then you go from there to wherever you go. There are at the moment about three thousand words, three thousand names on it, linked about sixty thousand ways. So anywhere you're going, you're going to choose among five to ten pathways, and each pathway you choose will take you somewhere entirely different. And this is the basis for those connection shows. I mean, that's why, as I did in one of them, you know, you can you can go from Napoleon's toothpick to nanotechnology. Um, interesting thing about doing the knowledge web was that I realized that the, there's only one way to go through history, and that's backwards. Um, you know, I I think. History is much more interesting if you start now and go back uh, than start back and come forward because starting back and coming forward, you you can choose any one of, I, God knows how many, 50,000 ways to come and you don't know where you're going to end up in the present anyway. And if what you're trying to do is look at history as something that helps you in the present, you never know where you're going to end up. So, I mean, the series always, I always do it backwards. You know, you start with nanotechnology and work back and you get to Napoleon's toothpick. And it's generally guaranteed to be a fairly interesting path because each time you choose a pathway out of five or ten links, the name of the game is to keep the audience's interest by choosing the one they won't expect. So it's always going to be, um, it's always going to be a pathway that surprises you. And I think surprise is one of the nice ways of learning things. There we are. Outstanding. Outstanding. All right. 
<clears throat> now, my second critique of the new series. Oops. We see no appearance of that bitchin' leisure suit that you wore in the first series. <laughs> yes, well, if, if you're an historian of, of, of dress, you'd recognize that in 1970, blah, or whatever it was, leisure suits were all the fashion. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, it was, it was high, high fashion. Oh, yeah. I I have to ask, because the production value of that first series was phenomenal. Uh. You will begin a sentence in Malaysia, and then you'll finish the sentence in Concord. Yeah. And because of continuity, you're wearing the same suit. Yes. How many copies of that suit did you carry around the globe while you were making the show? Four. <laughs> Four. Outstanding. And I, and I bet it was still hard to keep them clean even while you were doing that, right? No, not that hard because the most important thing was keeping the shirt clean. And I had about 10 of them, dark brown shirts, for that. But, Outstanding. Uh, uh, and, you know, the reason we needed that many was because we had the money in those days. So we, we did go from Malaysia to somewhere else in, in, in half a sentence. More recently, without funds, you may have noticed that there are almost no live backgrounds anymore. And that's true in, in general in, in television. The, the money isn't there to, to, to throw at it like that. I, I remember going to the BBC at the beginning and saying, well, they, they said, what do you want to do next? And I said, well, I thought I'd do a series, but it may take a while. And they said, yes. And then they said, how much do you want? And I said, well, you know, you know five million. And they said, oh, yeah. Now, today, <laughs> today, if you said five million, they'd laugh, as you yeah. because yep. that, that sort of money is just not there anymore in television. And that's funny. That was when five million was a fairly big deal in, in the was, 70s. It, it was a lot of money. Yes, 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 it was. Yes. And, and I realized that we did a rewatch, Robin and I, uh, this past week of the original series and then the current series. <laughs> and I realized as we were watching that every aerial shot is a helicopter. It's yes, not a yes. drone. It's not a crane. You no. you have a helicopter in action. Yes. Yes. Well, that's that's those were the days, as they say. Yes. That must have been incredibly expensive, and your producer must have just walked around with bags full of money. Well, nobody thought about it like that because it was there, you know, uh, and it was BBC money, so it wasn't real. <laughs> Very fair. It yeah. was certainly some stunning filmmaking and the the continuity and the flow of your presentation uh between shots and locations and um i i realized when i stopped to think about it there were a lot of long continuous takes where you were presenting a great deal of information um i just i found that fascinating it's uh the ability to convey that amount of information. I was thinking about one scene in particular where um, you had a paper chain of people as you were <laughs> expanding the connection yes. um, and walking through a building. Uh, yes. It was just wonderful, very and, memorable. And the other one you pointed out was one take, um, the Ursat's World Fair, where you're talking about plastics. You yes. do an entire monologue moving from step to step without break. And it's it's impressive as hell, just from an acting standpoint. Well, you know, you've either got a memory or you haven't. And fortunately, I mean, I think the audience takes these things for granted. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that audiences without experience in making programming of any kind, whether it's audio or visual like you two, um, they, don't, they just take that for granted. Um, and I, 
I, I remember I did a take walking down the side of a rocket at, at Kennedy, um, uh, linking uh, the, the final part of a one of the series, linking the vacuum flask with with the Apollo rocket because you have to keep the fuel cold exactly, and I remember I, I did most of the story walking down the side of of one of the of the Apollo rocket lying on its side, and at the end walked out of shot and back into shot and did 12 seconds of words and pointed and a rocket went up. This is because NASA always goes on time to the second. So we went back to the BBC and showed them this shot because we were quite, quite proud of it really. And they said, back projection. And we said, no. It's not back projection, that's a real rocket going. And they said, nah. We said, yes, it was NASA. It went on the second. And they said, nah. <laughs> I pointed and the, you know, the, the rocket lit. And uh, they said back projection. And we said, we said, no, the, the, the audience have never heard of back projection. And they said, oh, well, all right. But nobody said good. <laughs> that is so shocking to me. Evidently, that has now become an, its own meme at this point. You're you're experiencing a newfound fame because of that shot. <laughs> yes, I gather it's gone around again a bit, you know, funny. But I like the way the BBC said back projection. And when we said, no, they don't know what that is, they said, oh, well, all right. But not, <laughs> one, not one member of the BBC said, We're, thank you, that was good. No, no, no. So there yeah. Uh, if I may, thank you. That was a very good shot. It was. A, we were pleased because, I mean, the nice thing was that you, you know, I, I had spent some years with NASA anyway, filming, so you know, I knew that they would go on to the second, and uh, and the crew, film crew, didn't. I mean, because they hadn't done it before with NASA. So I said, "What we're going to do?" And they said, "You'll be lucky." And I said, "No, no, no, no. This is NASA." So we, we said to the assistant cameraman, you go over there by the loudspeaker in the distance where they're doing the countdown and you do the countdown like this. And, then, and he said, are you shot for? And I said, just because it'll be on time. And they said, nah. So the guy stands there going 10, nine, eight, and at whatever it was, 11 seconds, I started talking. And at 11 seconds later, I stopped talking and pointed and the rocket went. And the young man who was the, <laughs> who was the assistant, assistant uh, cameraman, said, how did you know? We said, because it's NASA, you know, they go to the second. And he said, why are they so good at time? And I said, well, you can't go into planetary unless you are good at time. Because when you get there, the planet will not be there, it'll be somewhere else. You don't want to be off by half a second when you're traveling 93,000 miles. Exactly, yeah. especially if you're going to try and land on the moon. Yes, so there we are. Outstanding. Well, we appreciate the heck out of that shot. It, it is still powerful and, and it evokes an emotion. And even if the audience doesn't know that a single take is occurring or what goes into it, I think subconsciously it still conveys a lot of power um, to them, even if they're not aware of what it is they're yes, seeing. Yes, true. I, I, I understand what you're saying, and I'm sure you're the same as me. We know why it went like that and how it happened, but it still you still think, oh, that's good. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. All right, my third and final critique of the, the current series, mm. not once do you take a drink throughout the entirety of it. In the original series, it seemed like you were globetrotting so that you could have uh, a German lager or a gin and tonic, or the, and you don't seem to do that in this one. And, and I understand the limitations of the, the green screen, but uh, uh, it doesn't look like you're having quite as much fun. Oh, dear. 
Well, I was. I just don't <laughs> maybe maybe I drink less than I used to. <laughs> That's fair too. That, yeah. Now we did like the dancing of your, you know, your animal. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what that was supposed to be, but I certainly wasn't deliberately dancing. It was horsing <laughs> <laughs> around. <laughs> um, so I have to say, um, obviously, the way that I viewed the show as a young person and the way that I view the show today necessarily changes because I have more context as a viewer. Hmm. Um, I obviously was interested in the spectacle more as a child. Uh, I think it was in the day the universe changed where you have the marzipan mouse on a piece of toast. Um, <laughs> you know, and it, it was things like that that were yeah. just really intriguing. Yeah. Today, I see more and there seems to be more subtext as well. I, I have to ask, um, you use the phrase with at least three historical figures in the original series. He wasn't really interested in carousing or chasing women or something like that. Was that sort of a snarky BBC approved way of saying that he was gay? Is that is that a thing in context there? No, I don't think so. Um, no, I mean, there's ways of not being interested in women. It doesn't mean you're necessarily gay. No, I, I, mean, I understand. They, they frighten you. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering if there was there was more subtext no, no, to that. No, no, sorry about sorry about that. No, no, yeah. that's all right. Um, it, how much latitude did you have in the current series of scripting everything? It, it it does seem like in the current you have a bit more um, uh, political or emotional or social awareness in some of the topics than you may have in the original series. And I'm thinking specifically of uh, Rosalind Franklin and how much credit you give her after being ripped off by uh, uh, Watson and Crick. Yes, I think probably that's age on my part. You know, the older you get, the more confident you are giving your opinion or espousing an opinion that, with which you agree, in, which, in the case of Rosalind Franklin. Um, I think, you know, when I was a kid doing the first one, um, we were all kind of scared. <laughs> we were all kind of, I mean, you did, you, and you didn't go around at the age of 20-something saying, well, this is a blah, blah, blah. You don't do that. Now, I don't care. So I say it if I wish. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and it, it allows you a bit more freedom, old age. That's that's got to be liberating. Um, <laughs> <It> certainly is. <laughs> was there some editorial pushback from the BBC on the original series? Did they ever ask you to cut anything or modify anything? No, no. The worst thing the BBC could do to you was to say something was boring. Um, and and once or twice you'd meet some of the the higher high ups who'd, who'd watch a uh, an early an early shoot through. And they'd say that's a bit boring, and you say it's not not cut yet. Oh, okay, that's so fine. <laughs> but, but they were never no. They were the, the BBC was. I don't know what it's like now, but it used to be. It was a wonderful place to to be young and experimental, because they they just gave you the money and give you your head. As one said to me very early in in my career, they'll have the money, and if it's no good, you'll never have any more again. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Yes, that's very yeah. fair. They they gave you the the you know they gave you the money and you did what you had to do with it. And it's an opportunity to fail or succeed. And your yeah. show, the original connections, was the most watched documentary at the time. Is that correct? No, I think so. But that tells you more about the quality of the other documentaries. You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, well, there's been a renaissance in recent years of that form that's been mm. just amazing and, and very well received. Form in what sense? The, the mm. documentary. It, it has taken on a genre all its own where it's become almost more popular than dramatic presentations. Yes, I think so, because, it, because usually reality is, if you handle it carefully, more exciting than drama. Uh, you know, life presents a myriad of possibilities and you just choose the, the ones that excite you or the ones that excite other people to do it. Mm. I think it's such a fantastic format to uh, connections in particular because it you have the overarching story of the evolution of the technology and the the path that that takes, but it's also very anthology anthological. There's there's sure. there's different smaller stories within it, and it can capture and hold your attention for bite-sized pieces while putting together this larger story. Yes, true. Uh, I was thinking about it in in the age of TikTok, where um, attention spans are decreasing. This format holds up so well for a younger audience that they can still engage with it and remain entertained. Yes, I think it's because, as you say. In bite-sized pieces, there are different stories that follow different stories all the way. So you never, I think after a while you become confident that you're not going to be bored or you're not going to be talked down to or you're not going to be over-informed with fact. And the trick is, I suppose, to get the balance among those things right. But um, in my experience, in, in, you know, television succeeds when it keeps the audience surprised. Um, you know, the, the, today I find uh, I watch television and a great deal of what I see makes me think, oh, you know, I know this, so why am I watching it? Or else, you know, don't treat me like a moron, you can go faster than that, or something. So I think the trick is, I think, always to keep the audience slightly, slightly wrong-footed. I'm sure you know. Of course you do. In, in preparation for this episode, we were discussing uh, the, the way you present material, and, and both Robin and I agree wholeheartedly, you are never pedantic. You have so much command of the knowledge and you have such a presence, but you never make the viewer feel like an idiot. You're always um, willing to share the fact that you don't completely understand a certain chemical process or some deep science thing and and yet you still convey the information in a way that's acceptable and in a way that's entertaining and that makes it more sticky and it inspires curiosity there's so much um curiosity and love of discovery in the way that you present the material that um i just love the way that that's conveyed you can't help but feel inspired while watching it well i think it's you know the, the trick is to, uh, you know it's a trick the trick is to, to get the audience to believe that you don't know where you're going any more than they do <laughs> and so as it were they they join you on the journey and uh you know as they discover you discover and i, I just think that's a means of presenting that's all it, it, now you have the teaching background and that's that's readily apparent but you mm. also seem to have a flair for the dramatic you have great comic timing I checked your IMDb, and the only credit you have in there, other than the works you've created, is a program called Doom Watch, where you portrayed BBC Man London, which is sort of a role that could be, um, he's cast as James Burke. So, <laughs> I, 
I have to wonder, did you ever consider going to Hollywood? Did you ever consider uh, going with uh, the dramatic or entertainment roles? No, 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 no. You've got to, you've got to want different things to do that, I think. You know, I mean, all the actors I ever met, all the actors I ever met were never really happy, I think, because they were, they were being different things with each role and revealing different things in themselves and in most cases revealing how they lacked something. In other words, there was another role to do which would be even better. Now, you know, I knew that when I started, this was as good as, this was as, good as it was going to get, so I didn't have that problem at all. Um, the, the thing, I suppose, about timing, I'm Irish, that's the answer. <laughs> I mean, I think the Irish are natural comedians. <laughs> Very fair. Very well, fair. They have no choice but to be, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, are you happy? I mean... Am I, am I happy? Yes, you, you say, you know, most actors aren't, that they lack. And, and I think you may be correct there. But uh, in your role and what you've accomplished and how you've succeeded, are you content with what you've accomplished? And, and are you enjoying life? Um, yes and yes. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, first of all, I'm very old. So you only have, I mean, that's it. You know, that's what, uh, am I happy with what I've done? Relatively speaking, yes. Am, am I happy, happy? Yeah, why not? I mean, I'm happily married. I, I live in a beautiful place. I have some very, very good friends, most of them extremely funny and highly talented. And in that sense, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. But you make your own friends and you make your own career and all that stuff. So I guess I'm also lucky because I'm happy because I'm happy. I never thought about it before. Strange, but I Absolutely. enjoy it. I enjoy doing it, whatever it is. So there we are. Well, we're pleased to hear that. We we wish you the most <laughs> happiness that you could possibly have. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> what did you have another thing? Okay, I, I have I have many more. Um, in both series, uh, you do come to a conclusion. There there is an outcome, uh, especially in the first series where the tenth episode is sort of the culmination of the rest of the episodes. Yeah. But at the very end, you always pose more questions than crafting answers or making predictions. And I respect mm -hmm. the heck out of that. I think especially in IT, especially in technology, making predictions mm -hmm. is a sure way to look like an idiot eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was that a specific choice that you made? Is that a pedagogical approach where you want to convey that inspiration to the viewer as student and have them go and do their own exploration? Or is that just because you didn't want to take a, a firm stance somewhere and, and, and put a pole in the sand? Uh, a, couple of three, a couple of three reasons, I think. One is, is if the audience has followed you this far, it's a way of thanking them. It's a way of saying, here's where you go from now, if you're interested. You want to keep going? Keep going and do it yourself. The other is, I've never done a program where when I got to the end, I thought I'd got to the end. And I think part of, part of the attraction for these kinds of programs, not just mine, are that you watch something not to get a complete answer, but to get a, an answer to some questions you have and in such a way as to recognize that there are more questions that you have 
and that this time maybe you can answer them yourself. So it's part of bringing the audience into the process itself and leaving them with the next step which they take themselves, I guess. Outstanding. Outstanding. It's it's magnificent. It really, really is. And it makes for gripping television. I think you did crack the code there. And I, I think a lot of other <laughs> a lot of other filmmakers and television producers could take a page out of your book and actually, you know, apply it better to what they're doing. Um, well, I took pages out of others, so there we are. Why not? And, and I remember you saying that in another interview with you that I listened to recently, um, uh, where you had reached out to a historian about a footnote they had written about the Battle of Hastings and the stirrup. And you said, do you mind if I steal this from you? And he said to you, you steal it, I stole it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's <laughs> that knowledge, we're all, that's Yeah, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Right. Yeah. Um, you you um, have this uh, elemental or fundamental principle in one of your current episodes mm -hmm. about how uh, the predictive capabilities, especially with quantum computing, will accelerate to the point where it can be much more precise and uh, much further into the future than yeah. the, the prior materials such as Nielsen ratings and that kind of thing. Yes. I, I have to wonder, I mean, and, and I think both Robin and I kind of got chills up our spine with that one. It's a little intimidating um, to consider that uh, even with free will, we may be predictable. Um, but I have to I have to wonder because almost your entire work, your, 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 the bulk of your work attributes a good 50%, if not a majority of human progress to the outliers, the zany, crazy characters who go and do something for their own impetus, whether it's, you know, sitting on a mountaintop and staring at the sky for three years without a break, or whether it's, you know, the guy, I don't know, it was Kepler Copernicus who breaks into Tycho Brahe's study and steals his notes. You know, <laughs> humans are little chaos muppets. And, yes. and what we do is so unpredictable. I don't think an AI could ever determine that beanie babies were going to be a huge commodity or that teenagers were going to eat Tide Pods or that the fucking Macarena was going to happen. So I, I have to wonder, do, do you truly believe that at a micro level an AI will be able to determine activity or that just general trends and progress can be predicted? I think I think the most... For my money, anyway, the most likely effect of AI is being able to do what society in every detail can do. And in that sense, the big, for my money, the big question, and I may be about to do for the BBC another film and it will be about this. What happens when AI knows everything? What happens to society when there is nothing to learn that AI doesn't know already. And parallel with that, of course, what happens, one has to realize that when you say to somebody, hi, my name is Fred and, blah, and I'm a doctor and what are you? And the other person says, I'm a whatever. We will stop saying that because people will not have jobs. AI will deal with all that. So the question is, for the first time in more than, let's say, 25,000 years, are we ready to say who we are rather than what we are? 
because we've never said who we are before. I guarantee neither of you two has ever answered, who are you? Nobody ever says, who are you? They say, what are you? And you say, I'm a broadcaster, I'm a doctor, I'm a dentist, whatever. So I think with a bit of luck in your lifetime, but probably not mine, we are going to have this wonderful adventure where the entire, the whole of society is going to have to radically rethink what it is we are. And, and therefore what? I can't finish the sentence because I don't know. Um, if you think about it, I mean, you, I'm, I'm certain, even as brilliant interviewers, you've never asked somebody who they are. You've asked them what they do, what they think, what they blah, blah, blah. It's always the what word. And AI will remove that. And I, I think it'll be the most important thing that ever happened to humankind since, I was going to say the caves, but perhaps I mean more than the caves. Certainly 20, 25,000 at least years. So I've lost a question. <laughs> uh, in addition to the AI replacing human knowledge and yeah. activity, yeah. I also wondered, do you believe that uh, the predictive capability of things like quantum computing can function at a micro level of individual humans or only at the macro level for groups and populations? Well, in a sense, in a sense, it operates at the micro level in every single human being and every single interaction with every other single human being they meet. I mean, just playing with that tiny knowledge web of mine with 60,000 connections, it, it is perfectly clear that, that w with human interactions, one-on-one -on -one always makes three, at least. And the thing about humans is they bump into each other. That, you know, that, that, that A meets B and the result is C. It's very rarely A meets B and the result is another B. So, I don't see why artificial intelligence could not handle that fairly simple level, if large, but fairly simple level of many, 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 many interactions, because each one is one. Sorry, one and one, meaning making three. So, yes, I don't see why not. I mean, it's, it's a question of scale and time. And the thing is, AI doesn't care about time. And the bigger it is, the less time it uses. So I think that's 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 going to be straightforward. All right, all right, that's very fair. <clears throat> a lot of these ideas, uh, the end to scarcity, you know, a post-human world, uh, they percolate up through science fiction. And as any good nerd, I was steeped in sci-fi growing up, Golden Age, and then the the later things. Uh, were you a fan of sci-fi? I, I I understand you studied uh, old English uh, at Oxford, but. Did you like some of the speculative fiction as well? Oh, yes. No, no. I, I, when I was a young person, yeah, I read a lot of science fiction. I can't remember what, they, what I read, but it was, I, I was fascinated to see what some writers would think the future was about. But I think, I mean, it's, I just, I happen to like to read anyway, and I read books, and many, some of them were science fiction books. I think other people express that interest in their own lives. I mean, by striking out and becoming something else, or maybe even just progressing through life and trying to make sure it doesn't fall on their head. I mean, Do you remember any of the authors that you enjoyed, if not the specific books or titles? No, alas. No. That's fair, that's fair. No. Um, in the original series, one of the very cool things you do 
is you actually show, you, you handle some of the primary sources. Um, you go to Lloyd's of London and you have that insurance book where there's the grade of the Norwegian ship. Um, you have a contract from one of the champagne fairs where some merchant deals with uh, some investor and they deliver some goods. Um, there's less of that in the current series. Um, was that, again, a conscious choice or, or was that just uh, because you weren't traveling as much and, and reaching it's, as many places? Precisely that, yes, yes. Because, you know, you, you can go to Champagne and you can look at the Champagne fairs and you can tell a story and you can tell it as well as you can tell it, but there's no substitution for actually saying it looked like that or this is what they used or here is what they ate. So that that's that's a part of having enough budget to be able to go to the Champagne fairs and then tell that story because that's how you would tell that story there. Without that, you can't tell that kind of story. Well, you can, but it becomes more of a lecture. So I think I was, I was uh, hoist a bit by my own petard. There was no, you know, there was not enough money. Uh, the difficulty was trying to, I mean, I still, to be perfectly honest, I, I, I'm still a bit surprised that last series was successful in any way at all because it lacked the one thing that I thought was very important to the, all the previous series, which is all the places around the world where we went. Where, which were part of the story, like the Champagne Fairs or something. Um, bringing the past to the audience in that way, we couldn't do in this last series. So it was much more of a storytelling thing. And, you know, green screen and all that, this, you know, it's perfectly plain and you know, obvious that what's behind me isn't there. Um, and there's, there's a lot of standing around among trees and stuff which aren't you know so what <laughs> because we couldn't afford to go to a jungle so i i think it's it's part of the it's part of the limitations of the technique that you have to use given various things like money i will say that was the one thing that i really missed was you interacting in those spaces with those objects it it created a more tangible sensation yes yes it does but I'll say this, I'd rather have the new connections than not have it at all. Ah, well, that's, that's, yes. well, that's like saying I'd rather have a piece of bread than no bread at all, you know. Yes, <laughs> some, some, of, some documentary television is worthwhile, others aren't. Um, the, the, the great problem, you know, with, with, with not my case necessarily, but, but in, in this particular case, was without the money you can't do the kind of stuff that would look interesting and good by itself. So you're thrown back on your own resource. Can you tell a good story as a storyteller? Well, that's very hard. Um, and I'm not sure I'm any good at it, but I, I, I was forced to. Um, are, are you serious? <clears throat> that's not just false humility. You honestly don't know if you're a good storyteller? Well, I mean, everybody's You, you sir, are a master of the craft. <laughs> that's because you're being polite. but. No, I mean, obviously, you can tell a far better story with uh, reality behind you than green screen. Because you can reach into the jungle and pull out this thing and say, and here's one. You know, there's, there's, there are moments in television when nothing beats that, the, the, the revelation. Where you reach into a cupboard or something and you pull out something like, you know, a 14th century Bible and say, did you know that this was blah? The audience, you can feel the audience focusing. You can't do that 
if you can't reach into that cupboard and pull out that 14th century Bible. You can do your best, but it's never that good. Now, I, I do still like the production value. The, <clears throat> it's great use of historic footage. It's great use of, of the, the various B-roll that they have. I mean, they, yeah. they can still portray different locations uh, without having to go there, which, which is still nice. And, and it looks very clean, and it's very pretty in HD. So it, it's not terrible at all. I, I want to no, get that. No, I, I hope it's not terrible. But the, from my point of view, the big difference is that, you know, if, if, if you're standing behind the camera instead of front of it, and you know why you're shooting this particular location to fit in a certain way with what you've been saying before on camera, you can tweak how you shoot that scene to fit more, what's the word I'm thinking of? Ah. You can pose it better, you can position it better, you can yes, make yes, more dramatic yes, effects. You can, you can, you can you can take you can take shots of a real sequence that that where you reach in and you know pull out the, the 14th century Bible or something, but there are ways in which you can do reality to underline part of the story you've been telling in your fictive behaviour as a as a as a, as a, as a storyteller, and and so one of the, the other things you're doing at several levels, part of the viewer's brain will say without without saying it loudly. Ah, that's why he said so and so. But you don't have to say it because you've done it. You can't do that with footage, you know. So, so show don't tell is really what show, you're conveying. Show don't tell, All right? Yes, that'll do. <laughs> um, <clears throat> there's so much of that reliance on those primary sources in the first one. In the the current series, there was a, at least one. Um, anecdote that you're conveying that I was kind of questioning uh, because of my own context and, and experience and knowledge. Uh, you talk somewhat about uh, the ARPANET and the, the uh, uh, progeneration of the original internet. Mm. And, and the way you explain uh, where it came from is, and I'm loath to use the word propaganda, and I'll use the term retcon from comic books, where we do a, a retroactive continuity or a retroactive yeah, congruence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, uh, uh, the, the justification that was used was we need a distributed set of data so that if one node is taken out by a nuclear blast or some other attack, the yeah. rest of the nodes will sustain as a mesh network. Yeah. Well, that's not exactly true and i'm wondering if you talk to anybody from that time period any of the the contemporaries to get a read on actually how that occurred or where you got that knowledge from i don't remember and i certainly know i did not do that but i don't remember what i think i might just have spoken from ignorance oh okay and i i didn't mean to call you out on that but uh, you, no, 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 no why not why not yeah. I hope I'm people listen they should call me out um, yeah, the, the, the actual true source was that the Department of Defense had given some bags of money to a bunch of grad students. They made their computers talk to each other so that they could play games and tell dirty jokes and that sort of thing. Ah. And then when the government came back around and said, what'd you spend all the money on? They came up with the justification of distributed <laughs> data as um, a defense application. I wish I'd known that we could have turned that into one hell of a sequence. <laughs> Um, uh, I, I, 
I also had uh, something that really struck me in the original series on the rewatching that you just sort of gloss over that I think is so powerful and fundamental. It could really do us a, a good service today. You talk about how late privacy came as a concept and a principle to our awareness as human beings, that it's a, a very fleeting thing in human history and was only created because of the mini ice age and the invention of the flu and the fireplace so that uh, the aristocrats could have their own bedroom. Today, everybody seems to think privacy is a fundamental human right and that it's been with our species since inception. But in fact, it's just very, very recent. It's only, you know, a couple hundred years old, if that. Mm -hmm. Do you see a potential world of post-private humanity just as the way we had pre-private up till that point? I suppose I would think that the end result of the way things are heading now, after AI has done its job, is a world where we all have it, privacy. We all have privacy by doing nothing about it because there is no, there is no common pathway that any of us is taking. We're not, I mean, whether two doctors in a room, you've got two doctors in a room and there's a whole vocabulary that they share uh, you know and you have a painter and a, and, a, and a dog in the room and there's two, two or three things to say about both of them that there is a there's what I'm trying to say is that, that we are we are denied privacy by the way our society functions these days and so we to protect it we go and shut our doors and sit by the fire I think after AI We'll have all the privacy we like because there will be no commonality in that sense there will be no i will be me i won't be a doctor i will be me and there is only one me or you or anybody else and but we'll still have a social drive and you'll still have people who want to post pictures of their dinner so that other people can view it throughout the world so they they will be choosing not to be private and more people have more access to more information about more humans. Yes, but I'm not sure that the access will be as mapped out in advance as it is now. I mean, and, and to take a picture of your dinner party and send it to people is to give away a bit of what, what used to be called privacy, but now isn't because you choose it not to be so. That, that doesn't mean you don't, you've lost anything. It means you've taken a bit off it and sent it to some people. As long as you're doing it, and it seems to me that post-AI, it's going to be harder to get into people's lives than it used to be, far harder. And what you get from them is what they give you. And if they don't give it to you, that's it. And it's going to be so much easier not to give because we won't need to take. Ah, so especially with post-scarcity, you don't need a credit rating. So no. you don't need a credit bureau. No. Um, uh, you, you know, with post-scarcity, a lot of the crimes of theft and, and robbery are gone. So you don't need an intrusive surveillance state. No. Is, that, no. is that kind of where you're going? Yes, yes, we will, we will not possess anything recognized by others to be of value because nobody will know unless we wave it about as we take. And if we do that, it's because we want to. And if we want to, 
you know, some people enjoy being thieved. <laughs> you know, you know. I can use worse examples, but you see what I mean. <laughs> Absolutely, of course. Um, we talked a little bit about the, the new approach with the production value with the green screen. Even though that is somewhat limiting in terms of underlying certain concepts where you could reach in and pull out a nutmeg from the forest yeah. or whatever, um, yes. does it also allow you to tell a story that's broader um, because now they can just conjure up a, a graphic of what it is you want to depict? And that did that allow you to take the story in certain directions that you maybe wouldn't have previously? That's a bit complicated to answer because I don't remember the detail of making it that, that well. But clearly, everybody's brain will handle what comes out of my mouth in a different way. And usually with fancy backgrounds, and here we are, look really in Panama or Tierra del Fuego or whatever, there's less of that going on because <laughs> what you, you know, people are probably more interested in looking at Tierra del Fuego than listening to you talking about it. So you write differently if you know that Tierra del Fuego is really there than you would if it weren't. If it weren't, then you write about Tierra del Fuego in a different way. You write about Tierra del Fuego in a way that you can't if it's there because it gets in the way of this multi-level interpretation of what it is you're saying. Multi-level acceptance, if you like. So... In a way, like podcasts, podcasts are much more interesting than real television or whatever, because there's nothing but the words and the words are what's in the other person's brain. And it comes and it hits your brain and then it bounces around your brain, too, because the brain is just like the knowledge web. So, you know, my one and one hits your brain and makes 47. Not me, you. And that's a personal experience that each brain enjoys because it wouldn't do it. So it seems to me that it's almost like saying, I wish we could wean people off the need to watch television and move them towards radio. <laughs> well, no, because you can get so much more from radio. I mean, anybody can look at Tierra del Fuego, but not everybody can think, listen, interpret, bounce back off, blah, blah, blah somebody saying things about Tierra del Fuego, but also a dozen other things at once, which you couldn't do if you had to watch the bloody Tierra del Fuego. And so the visual can actually take away from the conveying of the information because I think it, it I, distracts. Yes, yes I, think, I think the visual is a, is a pathway down which you are forced to go, with it now and again the odd look across the street, but if you're lucky. And, and I suppose the, the, uh, one of the few good things I felt came out of that last Connection series was I was doing that all the time because it was really a radio show. <laughs> well, yeah. With some great visuals. Um, With some I, great visuals, yes. I have to apologize for my ignorance here. Uh, Robin and I are Americans, so we don't understand how these things work. But why in the world are you not an OBE or a CBE or one of those other things. Why? Why has that not happened yet? Um, don't know. Don't care. 
Did you piss off some uh, someone in the royal family by saying something about one of their forebears? No, no, not at all. No, not at all. But, you know, there are a lot of Brits. There are 51,948,000 other than me. So they've got to get through a lot of them first. <laughs> so, but no. you do stand out a little bit. And and it, it would be great to, to call you, you know, uh, Sir James. Sir that, James, that would... wouldn't it? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I saw something the other day. Oh about the royal family, and I'm not a monarchist. I'm, uh, if I'm anything, I'm a Republican, more American than American. And I just watched the royal family doing whatever it was doing, and I thought, the trouble about the royal family is it's got fancy uniforms and it looks like a military general when it's never you know, fired by an arrow, or whatever. And everybody listens and everybody applauds and everybody says hooray and hands over money, which I guess they do. Tourists come and bring loads of money to Britain. But what for? I, I think, you know, what annoys me about, about the royal family is this, you know, it, it perpetuates the feeling of difference in our society. And I think the great thing about America is you want to be great, be great. If you, you've got it, flaunt it. But if you haven't got it, no worries. You know, you do what you're doing. Um, so, yeah, that's my answer. I, I have to agree wholeheartedly. I, I much more appreciate being a citizen than a subject. Absolutely. Uh, that just that rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. Um, Robin, you you had brought up a point about um, British schooling. Do you want to? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I um, one of the things that I really appreciated about your show. Um, sorry, one moment. We have an impatient puppy outside. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> I have audiences like that, yes. <laughs> you want to wait till he comes back? Sure, sure. Oh, I, no, as you wish. I'm you... perfectly happy to carry on. <laughs> Do you have any pets? Do I have what? Any pets? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what pets are for anyway. <laughs> Nor are we, and we love ours, so it's... No, no, no I'm sure you love your... Is it a dog? We have yes. a dog and a cat. Yes. No, I'm, I'm fond of cats, particularly more than dogs. But that's because I think they seem to be more intelligent than dogs. <laughs> and, they, and they do a little bit less, uh, ha, 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 whatever you say, stuff, which dogs tend to do. Cats give me the impression they're saying, well, I'll let you know. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Yeah, it was, it was um, one of the things that I really appreciated about connections is the the way that you convey information has so much humility to it and a sense of humor. Um, it really, I, it makes the information accessible for a wide range of audiences and backgrounds. And in my limited experience with uh, British schooling, I, I went to a British school for part of high school, um, that that was not the approach to education. It was very much that the, the professor speaks to you and they possess the knowledge and you should not question them uh, and you should just take the information wrote. And what I so appreciated and found uh, so different about your approach is that it, it poses questions and it invites you to think and engage and mm -hmm. uh, wonder about the world around you. Um, and I was curious if that approach at that time during the original Connection series in the 70s uh, if, if that was a unique approach or if you found that among your contemporaries? I think uh, that that particular period was one of curiosity 
questioning, not quite thinking for yourself, but almost, because of what was going on in science and above all in space. I mean, don't forget it was you guys going to the moon. I mean, you know, it's sometimes difficult to realize what life was like when those rockets lifted off and you thought these guys are going to the moon and then you saw them bouncing around the moon. And beyond the moon, what? Now, that was an extraordinary period of time. I, I, I would have thought, I would have hoped for most of the American population to look out there and say, that's us doing this. What are we going to do next? So there was, there was a questioning anyway at the time. But the, the British school, uh, it's probably true everywhere. There are two kinds of schools, it seems to me. They're, they're what in England are called, the, what you call public schools. We call private schools public. Don't ask me why. And, you know, there are public schools and then there are, there are academies or upper high schools or whatever you like. And, and if the good ones are very, very good. I was very fortunate, and many people in Britain too. I mean, my school was founded in, in 1549. So it's, it's one of the oldest grammar schools in the country. And it, it, its tradition was to teach you to think for yourself. And if you handed in a paper which gave the right answers, you would probably got it back saying, why are you writing this? Why did you write these answers? We all know that. Have you anything else to say? And that was a normal part of my education. So I, I was lucky in the sense that I went to that kind of grammar school, but there are hundreds and hundreds of them in Britain. And I'm sure there are in America too. Um, so that's my answer, yes. That's good. I, I admittedly had a very small sample size, but um, I, yeah. I found it very curious because I, I agree with you. There's there's such a difference in the approach to academia, uh, the idea that uh, some people can possess the knowledge um, and that it should not be questioned, I think is it's wrong headed. It doesn't it doesn't engage. It doesn't convey the information and the ability to inspire that curiosity is really what drives growth and development and innovation. I, I remember a, 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 a theoretical physicist came to school. I never forget. He said he said scientists have the reputation for, for being accurate. You know, they don't fluff around. They say things pinpoint accurate concentrated and and then and he said and of course they're wrong because they don't know what comes next <laughs> even if they even if they think they do they, they should have the intelligence to know they might be wrong and i think this was the thing behind our grammar school system that you were taught to you were taught to to be to be never be sure about anything yes. outstanding <clears throat> um well uh mr burke not not sir james uh, we, we can't thank you enough for having been on the show. Uh, I, 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 I haven't bored you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> far from it. And, and I feel like we've just scratched the surface of everything we'd like to ask. Yeah. Um, the show is on Curiosity uh, Channel. Um, it's extremely affordable, $5 a month here locally, which is uh, outstanding. Guess I highly who, recommend it. Guess who paid for the last series, my last series, Curiosity? Oh, the, the network did, the, yeah, the, yeah, the yes. streaming platform. Yes. Yes. The, it, they did a fine job, and it was a good title for them to use as a flagship, because <laughs> I had never heard of the channel before, but as soon as your name was attached, uh, okay. we subscribed. Yeah. They have a large yeah. number of, I think, 32 million people subscribe. Really? They say, yes, around the world. 
I'll have to look at some of their other shows now and, and continue to Maybe support them. <laughs> um, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience? Anything you'd like to tell them or anything that you want to promote as an upcoming work or something in the future? No, I don't have anything I'm promoting because I'm th thinking about the artificial intelligence thing for the BBC. And no, I, no, I don't think so. I, well, you know, I mean, it, it's pretty obvious the things one, one might say, but the, what what the thing that gets me most of all about in life and making programs that I hear from people about is that there's a whole vast load of people out there who think they're less intelligent than they are. Um, you know, the brain has that many neurons and that many dendrites, and there's a hell of a lot going on inside, and even you know, even Newton used only that much. You know, everybody has a brain and I, I always try to just say, go use it. But that's so trite, I shouldn't have said it. No, I, I, I think it needs to be said over and over again. Everyone has the capacity. Not everyone yes. chooses to, yeah, but everyone has, has that spark. And yes. if only they want to go and ignite it, then everyone would flourish. And, and we'd all progress. The most important thing of all is you are you. You're not anybody else. Outstanding. Um, well, thank you again. Thank you for all the work that you've done. Thank you for decades of entertainment and uh, uh, intellectual stimulation. Uh, let, me know, let me know when the show goes out and I'll turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. Until okay. next week, I'm Ben Maliso. And I'm Robin Cave. Join us again for another episode of The Sensuous Sounds of InfoSec. Hey there, listener, Matt here. If you like listening to Ben, Robin, Rofty, Joey, or myself, please consider supporting us at buymeacoffee.com slash securitized. Interested in training for CISSP, CCSP, CISM, SSCP, CCSK, boy, that's a lot of letters, or other InfoSec certifications, Go to Ben's website for all his training programs at wannabeacissp.com. That's spelled W-A-N-N-A-B-E-A-C-I-S-S-P.com. We are on Discord. Engage with us by searching for the channel wannabeacissp. Feedback or questions on what we discuss? Send a good old-fashioned email to ben at benmaliso.com. You may hear a shout-out or your feedback on a future show. We're all working professionals in the InfoSec industry, so feel free to link up with us on LinkedIn. Support Rofty's company and test drive their free firewall software called Portmaster, downloadable at their website, safing.io, spelled S-A-F-I-N-G dot I-O. All opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and for entertainment purposes only. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our companies, affiliates, employers, guests, or even each other. No advice given here should be followed without consulting with a professional for any specific InfoSec situation you may experience.